Hello and welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. Our guest for this episode is Jeremy Keith, maker of websites and writer of books about the web. You can find Jeremy on the web over at adactio.com and on Twitter at adactio. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Sam Cap, and during their chat with Jeremy, they run the gamut of the web. Progressive enhancement, depending on a database, sirens, the death of the web services, the telegraph, transcriptions, CERN, and preparing for a great talk. Now, during the recording of our conversation with Jeremy, there's some random tapping that got picked up by the mic. If you think you can identify what is making that sound, tweet us at NBSPTV with your guess, and we'll give some sort of digital prize to the person who can figure it out. So never mind the tapping, enjoy the show. Well, thanks, uh, Jeremy Keith is with us. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. And Sam is here, co-host. Yes, hello. So, uh, you're in town for Event Park, which is why we're actually able to do this. This is our, if everything, if all the technical stuff works out, it'll be our third in-person uh, interview on Number in Space. So it's usually just Skype and, mm-hmm. and talk about that. So This is nice, face-to-face. Yeah, this is, it feels good. And you're actually on our short list of people we really want to talk to. Um, but I always feel like, oh, he's, in, he's over there. Or like a, the time zone time difference zone. Yeah. Can, be, can be a pain. Yeah, yeah. so. But uh, so glad you're, you're in town and able to. It's nice, there. nice to be in your time zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you've you, know, you have a great blog. I want to talk okay. about um, and some some things that you uh, you come across. You come across a lot of things that what developers desires need to know. And I mean, you wrote the HTML5 book for uh, book part. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess my first question would be, when is it update to that? <laughs> you, you and Mandy both. She yeah. keeps bugging me about this. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not keen on second editions or updates in general. Yeah. Like, I feel like books are kind of a, I don't know, a slice of a particular time. Yeah, history books. Yeah, and, just, and then you know, leave them be and write a new book if you've got something to say. But Mandy was bugging me to, to at least update the first chapter, which is a bit about the history of the Block WG and the W3C, mm-hmm. because since the book was written... You know, did the, what WG now call HTML5 just HTML, the living standard? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe there'll be a few words, but it wouldn't be a new book. It would just be mm-hmm. an added paragraph. Oh, also, I think later on in the semantics section, I did end up including H group, which is now gone. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, dilly dallying, ah, should I? Like, like, this feels like it's it's. It's not necessarily safe. Like oh, really? its existence is not guaranteed. <laughs> how, how do you feel about each group as uh, as Elmico? So, here, so at the time when it was all being discussed, you know, when it was going into the I was like, this seems so silly. This seems <laughs> this is not a good element, right? That the yeah. the outer element H group would change the meaning of an inner element, like right, you know, yeah. H two or H three or H four. There's no other situation H where it happens. So, yeah. And also the use case just didn't seem to me to be that common, right? After that, I kept coming across use cases yeah. where I was using H group. Mm-hmm. It would be exactly the kind of thing described in the spec where it's, you know, title, mm-hmm. tagline, yeah. title, subtitle. Yeah. And I found myself using it, yeah. you know, quite a bit. And I realized, oh, okay, it's actually, it does have a purpose. Then right. now it's gone. Again. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I had to go back and take out all my H groups. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like, I like talking about it when, you know, we're all talking about the newness of HTML5 when it came out. And so, but, you know, they also, people were talking about the SEO impact of it. Of having all these multiple headings and stuff like that, but you never do anything out of SEO interest. <laughs> and then don't get me started. Right, but then you also have the problem with like you have H group, but then you have uh, people with their CMSs, and they don't—they're not control their CMSs. They're just right. in control of like. But but in a way, 
in a way, it's precisely that that I think made the sectioning content part of HTML so interesting. The idea that once you open a piece of sectioning content, like a section or an article on a site or an nav, I'm not sure why those are included, um, it's effectively a mini document. Mm -hmm. And so, you, and you can start from an H1 or an H2, it doesn't matter, start from whatever you like. Right. But it's self-contained and you know it'll fit into the outline of the overall document fine. Now for CMSs, that, that struck me as a plus, that oh. everything could be very modular and you didn't have to worry about, well, where is this going to fit in in the overall page? That was well, my thinking. I haven't actually seen many CMSs take advantage of that. And generally, the whole outline algorithm thing hasn't really been uh, clicking with people. Yeah. I haven't really grasped it. Is it interesting with age group that I was saying that the fact that there's an outer element that changes the meaning of the outer element. So right. I was chatting uh, with Tantec, I think recently, about, well, about HTML in general and semantics. And uh, he was kind of half joking and saying he's, he's thinking of writing HTML to good parts. <laughs> because, and I'm like, what do you mean? It's all good. It's HTML. Yeah. HTML is great. And he's saying, no. Um, the fact that some elements are dependent on their context is a weakness. So a paragraph is always a paragraph. Right. You know, and, and emphasis is always an emphasis, as strong as so it's strong. But a list item has to be inside a UL or an OL. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a DT or DD has to be inside a right, DL, yeah. a TR has to be inside a table. All those instances where <clears throat> the usage depends on, on its outer container mm -hmm. uh, complicates things, particularly, you know, for people trying to learn this from scratch. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, that's, that's one more level. And one of the great benefits of HTML historically I think has been the ease of, of of learning it. Well, it's also been browsers are very forgiving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's definitely by design. Yeah, right. I was going to say uh, one of the most common things that happens in my intro to HTML class is they list their list items without any OL or UL around it. Yeah. The browsers are completely browser forgiving, and they keep asking me why well, is that? It, it's working the, fine. My bullets the, are there. The like, only issue why that and I, and so. On the face of it, I would say, so yeah, just don't even bother having the outer containers, right? Just use your list items. Mm -hmm. but what the browser is actually doing is the browser is then generating uh, an outer container, like mm -hmm. a UL, I think, by default. And that could come back to bite you on the ass in your CSS. Mm -hmm. right, exactly. If you have CSS, it's expecting the LI to be, you know, the first child or something. And mm -hmm. actually, uh, according to the DOM now, it is inside a UL, even though you didn't put any UL there. Mm -hmm. So that leads to pain further down the yeah. line. But I agree that the... The forgiving nature of browsers is actually um, a, definitely a feature, mm -hmm. not a bug. Yeah, and that's why that's when they bring that up. I bring the pain of the validator right, right next after that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the validator. So here's the interesting with the validator is that it was always, you know, it was always intended as kind of a a tool for authors, right, to like just check that you're you're doing the right thing and then validating as the document. But a lot of people are also using it as a as a lint tool. Mm -hmm. I think during the XHTML. Years. Right. So it's like just making sure that your coding style is good. In other words, all lowercase, your coding, all your attributes, blah, blah, blah. And with HTML5, where it's like, yeah, you do whatever the hell you want. You know, quote, unquote, uppercase, lowercase, mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't matter. A lot of people freak out and are like, oh, but the validator will be completely useless. And it's like, well, no, the validator's still validating. It's not linting anymore. Yeah. What you actually wanted was a, was a lint checker for style. Very, two very different things. Actually, yeah, browsers, I mean, the DOM that's produced from a document with a mixture of uppercase and lowercase and quoted and unquoted attributes and missing opening tags um, or closing tags for things is exactly the same as a beautifully structured, you know, well-written, all lowercase, all quoted uh, document to the browser. It's, it's all the same. Well, that kind of brings me to my next point is that um, we want to talk about um, uh, 
uh, Dan Malton has a, a Twitter account and a Tumblr now, I believe it's Tumblr, uh, called Side JavaScript. And so those are all pages that uh, don't work or don't work well if you don't have yeah. JavaScript installed. So basically some, some, of the, some of the examples you have are just screenshots of uh, empty sites, you know, just blank canvas, if you will. Okay. Yeah. You know, empty viewport. And so what are you... I, I actually had something similar in my talk at Event Apart. I had like, you know, go to squarespace.com, mm-hmm. switch off JavaScript. It's, yeah. it's nothing different than Squarespace logo and nothing else. Yeah. Facebook, blank page. But... Um, you know, there was, there was a pushback against Dan's blog. Was, Tom Dale wrote a, a post um, arguing that Preston Hansen was dead, and I disagree with that, um, and we just agreed to differ. But something he did bring up, was, and I kind of have to agree with, was the uh, the tone kind of, thing of having a Tumblr blog that kind of points a finger and says, how are you doing it wrong? Now, Dan did write a blog post to explain that's not what he's Pending, you know, it's meant to be lighthearted, humorous. But I feel with something like side JavaScript, and actually more, more to the point, there was a was it mobile WTF from Brad Frost and Jen Simmons. It's like this kind of um, pointing the fingers at people doing it wrong, or you know, we believe doing it wrong. I'm not sure it's it's that productive. Yeah, uh, I, and I know it's it's meant humorously, but. Uh, I, I don't like that. And I know I catch myself doing it as well. You know, but it's like it's like the classic thing of just people having their thoughts on Twitter and 140 characters with a fail hashtag and not thinking that there's you know human beings who yeah. made, made those things. But um, it's funny to come to blog. <laughs> well, it's but also the, like to the point like uh, I met like Wilto actually is like I would tell you about this cool website, but there's a bug in it, and I don't want to tell you about it because then I'll get a bug request via Twitter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't want to get. Yeah, tw- Twitter is a customer support medium. It's not. It's not good. But but the other thing with with Dan's blog um, is, in a way, it's and I think maybe this is um, what Tom Dale got distracted by. In a way, it is a distraction because turning off JavaScript or having JavaScript turned off is not is not the the issue. In fact, browsers now make it really really hard to switch off mm-hmm. JavaScript. Right. I'm not even sure if it's possible anymore in mm-hmm. Safari. Um, progressive enhancement isn't about making it work. When JavaScript is switched off or unavailable, I know years ago it used to be the case that there was uh, internal networks where they would switch off JavaScript, you know, for security reasons, or whatever. But those those days are gone. But progressive enhancement is much more about um, dealing with the unexpected, mm. right? Like someone switching off JavaScript—that's that's a known use case. You say, okay, we'll plan for that. And and progressive enhancement is much more about all the things you can't plan for, mm. like uh, the JavaScript is enabled, but let's say you're on a, a mobile operator's network and they very helpfully. Uh, compress and minify <laughs> yeah. your JavaScript to do right. some. This happens, right? right Where yeah. they, they they send it through their own proxy server and screw up your JavaScript, and you're like, "There's nothing you can do you know, yeah. about that." Unless you're using Chris enhancement, in which case it's going to degrade down to just plain old-fashioned, you know, links and forms like that. Right. Um, or as Jake Archibald tweeted, you know, every every website is a JavaScript off website before the JavaScript is finished loading, mm. and maybe something goes wrong there on the network. Mm. Um, the example I was using in my talk wasn't wasn't a JavaScript off situation. I think the one that really drives it home was uh, the the error handling model of JavaScript being very unlike HTML that we were just discussing. Whereas HTML is really forgiving, so is CSS, right? Uh-huh. And this is how we can start adding new HTML tags or new CSS properties, and that's fine because a browser will see them, not understand them, ignore them. Great. But if you use a bit of JavaScript to browse it and understand the the part the JavaScript part will stop, throw an error to the user. Um, so it's a much more 
um, brittle error handling. I mean, it's a programming language. Okay? It needs to have that kind of error handling. And it's not nearly as strict as you know, strongly typed languages. But still, um, just in comparison to HTML or CSS, it's definitely the, the strictest of the three technologies in the front-end stack. So just from an engineering perspective, it doesn't make sense to put all your requirements into that basket, right? Okay. That's the one that's, that's the most brittle. It makes more sense to make sure your content is in the HTML. And the example I used uh, in my talk was that the website, the, the download page for Google Chrome, yeah. Google site, uh, I had a screenshot of it with, with a JavaScript error in the console. Um, for about two hours, nobody in the world could download Google Chrome. Because the button on the page, it was a link, but the link said a href equals JavaScript colon something. <laughs> and then in the JavaScript file, there was one error. Yeah. Something completely unrelated, yeah. you know, but just maybe a missing comma mm. or something mm -hmm. small like that. But it was enough that the whole JavaScript failed, mm -hmm. and so that link didn't work because it wasn't a, a genuine href value. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. If you'd used progressive enhancements, you could have you know, fallen back to just having a link that you know, actually points to something. Right. Um, so it's that example. Of, they obviously didn't anticipate that. They didn't plan to have an error in their JavaScript for two hours. Yeah. Um, but progression enhancement deals with those situations that you mm. can't anticipate. So the switching off JavaScript thing is a bit of a red herring. Yeah. Uh, it, although it does make for a fun Tumblr. Yes, it does. <laughs> I would say, like, uh, isn't that kind of like the, uh, the, I guess, the moving, I guess, one of the touchstones of Bulletproof Ajax, right? The book. Yeah, so, uh, it, it's really interesting. So Bulletproof Ajax was basically progressive enhancement yeah. applied to Ajax because right. uh, so funny with progressive enhancement, it just keeps reoccurring as the most robust methodology, I guess, because it's not a specific technology. It's just a, it's an approach. It's right, a way it's it's approach. Yeah, and no matter what new technologies come along, it keeps coming back as like actually this seems to be just from an engineering perspective, this seems to be the most robust way of dealing with new technology. Right. And sure enough, when, and when Ajax came along, I mean, I was very excited. It was great. I was, I was talking a lot about JavaScript at the time. You know, I'd done DOM scripting, and, and I was speaking in conference about JavaScript. And Ajax comes along, and uh, everyone goes crazy, and they throw the rule books out the window. They're like, we're going to use Ajax as a requirement right, for everything. And if you don't have the capabilities to execute this JavaScript, you get nothing. Right? Yeah. Kind of like trying to turn the web into a, into a plugin. Like Flash, you know, either you have the plugin installed or you don't. Either you get all the content, or you get nothing. Um, and I was mystified by this and, and getting kind of angry. I was like, no, just use progressive enhancement. Write a proper HTML document, use links, use forms, and can you know intercept those clicks and those submits um, using your JavaScript. You know, hijack it, if you will. Yeah. Kind of whole hijacks thing. And yeah. Hey, everyone was coining buzzwords. Right? Ajax, <laughs> I, I don't hijacks. blame you. There's no, there's no shame. There's okay, it's a safe zone. I'm not proud. I'm not proud. <laughs> but it, to me, it seemed it seemed kind of obvious. And then nobody was really talking about that. Oh, great, I'm going to have to write another book now, aren't I? And I didn't want to. Like the experience of writing a book was not pleasurable. Yes. But the I felt like if I don't do this, nobody else is going to. I'm going to have to, right. to write about it. But essentially, you can boil down the entirety of bulletproof Ajax into apply progressive enhancement to Ajax. Right. That's it. Yeah. That, that's all there was to it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a good book. Okay. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Uh, I want to transition that just a little bit in terms of um, talking about JavaScript, site JavaScript, and having to turn it off. Um, a little bit about archiving and digitization. Mm -hmm. So if your site is completely JS, how, you know, is there, you know, what is the ramifications of archiving that, I mean, we have internet.org uh, for, for archiving 
old stuff, but archive.org, yeah, yeah archive.org, but it's just like, yeah, yeah, I guess it's I guess it's similar to um, to what Google would see, mm-hmm. although Google's bought um, now parses JavaScript and stuff. To be honest, I hadn't thought about um, the effects on on the long term storage because the data is, is still probably stored somewhere in some file system, like uh, JSON files, maybe, yeah. or maybe it's in a database or something. But yeah, no, it's this is the point. I I tend not to get down to the level of the actual formats of the of the implementation, but it would seem that it's an inherently more fragile mm-hmm. way of delivering your content, so the chances of it lasting into the future would be would be pretty slim compared to you know flat HTML documents. But equally so, I mean, I I'm using a database um, for my blog, and I I feel pretty uncomfortable about that. Yeah. Over a long enough time scale, that's that's a dependency. I'm not really comfortable relying on. And it's funny to see people go back to flat files. There's like this kind of um, craze right now for CMSs where yeah. you just store stuff in you know, Dropbox's markdown and then yeah. it's like, actually, it's pretty robust and um, obviously it's great for performance when you're just hitting the file system rather than making a database call. Yeah. Um, so in general, I guess the closer you get to it literally being an HTML file right. sitting on the server, the, the better its chances. Uh, but I need to, I need to practice that myself. Yeah. Move away from this uh, MySQL dependency that I've currently got. Well, it's a good drug. I mean, yeah. it's, it's worked for a long time. Yeah, it's, no, it has worked, yeah. but uh, I do. I feel, I feel a little nervous. You know, I make backups. I make backups and all that. I've got local copies. But, uh, yeah, generally, you know, you want to be pretty sure, I think, uh, an HTML file sitting on a server. No includes, no server-side programming. For, for, for the actual content stuff, yeah. obviously, yeah. applications you need. Yeah. Um, you know, database and stuff. Yeah, so there's like there's Kirby, there's Kirby's, Jekyll, yeah, that's pretty nice. So, yeah, a bunch of them. And Jekyll, if you use on GitHub, it's pretty pretty speed too. So you can post your pages on there or say on that. So yeah, it's so funny how we, we kind of keep coming back to stuff that we did back in the nineties that yeah. we used to think we were like, oh, this is so amateurish. You know, real sites, you know, use includes and, and databases <laughs> right. and stuff, and yeah. it's professional. And now we're coming back to no, you actually perform. perform. Uh, performance reasons, having a flat HTML file sitting mm-hmm. on the server is the fastest way of getting it out there. Like, yeah. Everything old is new again. Yeah. With Kirby, I think um, for the, at least for the blogging features, it's all just a text file. Yeah. And yeah. as long as you have the right fields filled out, or you don't even mention them, yeah. just put Kirby, in. Kirby's made by a uh, really smart uh, German kid, uh, Bastian I got to meet him earlier this year, and he's been blogging some great stuff. Um, basically kind of related to the whole indie web movement, mm-hmm. which I've been getting very, very into, uh, about owning your own data. Well, like, even Zellman, it was like, you know, it was Independence Day, right? The old yeah, day. way back in the day, yeah, yeah. yes. That's so, right. We used to, yeah. it was like buttons we could stick in our site. Yeah, exactly. And now Before your time, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought Independence Day was a movie with Bill Pullman. It's both. They ripped it off from Zellman. Yeah, right. like, <laughs> that speech, Zellman originally gave that speech. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, oh, I just lost my train of thought there, yeah. But, um, yeah, so um, the uh, head of South by Interactive, um, Sean Keefe, actually, mm. uh, he gave a um, keynote at uh, Drupal Camp Austin, and um, it was just it was so South by. It was like everything about South by that you love was like in his keynote, and uh, he reminded everyone that uh, to do your own blog and to host yeah. your own stuff and not mm-hmm. put it on Facebook. Just because you want to own your own data, right? And yeah, you, you and yeah. I have had this conversation yes. plenty yeah. of times. Yeah. So I mean. <laughs> Okay, maybe the content will eventually disappear, but it should be your decision when it disappears and mm-hmm. not some third party who gets bought up by Yahoo or Google or whatever and then writes a blog post beginning, we're really excited to announce, <laughs> and finishes with, thank you for joining us on our incredible journey, right. and you've got two months to get your data out and we're shutting it all down. Exactly. 
Well, it came from Instagram going to Facebook, right? That was kind of a. Um, it was that, too much of a change, but you saw the deal with the policy issues of Facebook. <clears throat> yeah, having. Well, here's the interesting thing: when you sign up for a service, it's always a very one-way conversation. Mm -hmm. They they list their terms and conditions. Yeah. You don't get to ask. Um, I've got some questions. What's your plan for the next five years? What's yeah. your plan for the next ten years? What do you plan to do if you don't make money? What do you plan to do if you get bought out by a larger company? Do you have any guarantees in place? Um, they don't list these by default. Mm -hmm. like they, they want you to come in and yeah. they don't say, and they don't tell you when you're signing up. By the way, make sure you make a backup of anything you add to our servers because we're not guaranteeing anything here. And then that's why people are kind of shocked and surprised when they read the blog post saying, hey, we've been bought up by Google or yeah. Twitter or Yahoo, and you've got two weeks to get all your data out. But we're really excited. But we're, we're really excited. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was talking about this at a, at a talk in Germany, and I, I was just quoting blog post after blog post. They were literally all the same. They all began with, <laughs> yeah. you know, really, there's, there's a Tumblr blog called Our Incredible Journey. I think that's where I found off of your tweet. Yeah. Or, yeah. Our Incredible Journey yeah. And then somebody, somebody tweeted at me that it was exactly like that scene in the office, the original UK office, where David Brent walks in saying he's got good news and bad news. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bad news, you're all fired. But good news, I got a promotion. <laughs> and somebody says, that's not good news and bad news. That's bad news and irrelevant news. <laughs> and I feel that's how these blog posts are. It's like, they're really happy. They're excited. And everything's yeah. like, no, that's, that's bad news and irrelevant news. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the owning your own data thing, uh, I mean, I've, I've said it for a long time, but, but it seems like more and more people are coming around to it because they're getting burned. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of, of when, not if. Like for me, I remember, you know, I used to keep my links on Delicious. Yes. That didn't work out too good. I moved over to Magnolia. That didn't work out too good either. Apparently Delicious uh, is coming back. Yeah, whatever. I mean, it's <laughs> technically it still exists. But I, I, I moved over to using my own um, mm -hmm. system. Um, and I'm not going to move back. Links are fairly easy. That's fairly straightforward. Uh, pictures are hard. I've still got thousands on Flickr. And, and there's you, no way I, to download all. No, you can. You can. I can get. I can download it, but that's not. It's, it's not about downloads. It's not about having local copies. I want them on the web. I want mm -hmm. them at URLs. Ideally, I'd like them at you know URLs that don't change. But Flickr, even that doesn't feel safe anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, after God, eight years of photographs, thousands up there. I feel. I, I do have local copies, but that's that's not the issue. It's the fact that on the web and that. The fabric of the web would be torn apart if Flickr were to close. And this, bear in mind, Flickr is owned by the same company that shut down GeoCities, once the, the third most visited site on the web. Thousands, yeah. millions of URLs, people's fan pages, the information, you know, genuinely valuable information. Mm -hmm. There were tens of thousands of outbound links from Wikipedia that stopped working the day that Yahoo shut down GeoCities. So, so you know, the, people get burned by this stuff. I remember Pounce particularly hurt for me, you know, because I really, <laughs> I really love Pants. Yeah. It was a great service. Did you ever use Pants? It, no it was a few years ago. It was, uh, that was uh, several, several years ago, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's going back. It was really nice. I mean, it's funny, when Google Plus came out, I remember thinking, wow, it's really nice the way they've managed to re-implement Pants at Google. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Pants was the first to do the groups thing, right? Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like what Google Plus did in circles. Mm -hmm. But it loads, and it was basically two, three people working yeah. And it was really good. And also, I should point out, I was a paid-up member. So this idea that, you know, if you pay for something, it won't go away, right. not necessarily. I, was, I had a pro pounds account, yeah. and it still went away. And they said, we're shutting down. Here's, here's all your data. And here's a free, because you're a pro, here's a free uh, Vox account, because they got bought up by Six Apart, Six Apart mm -hmm. ran Vox. Yeah. A year or two later, Vox shuts down, throwing yeah. away six or seven million URLs. 
Yeah. And what did, what did they say at Fox when they were shutting down? What's the news? No, they said, uh, well, yeah, so we're, we're really excited. excited. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think you should all open up Postgres account. Well, that one. Is well, fun. let's yeah. So at some point, if you were if you know if you if you were moving your data from all these services, at some point you'd have to stop and question like, maybe I should host this stuff myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, a minority of people are starting to feel that. Yeah. Starting to feel they want to get that solved. But of course, there's there's real issues there. Like what these services provide is ease of use, nice yeah. interfaces, mm -hmm. tools, and it's still too nerdy to host your own. Yeah, still too geeky. Yeah, I feel I, feel, I love I love GitHub. I think it's one of the great wonders of the of the web internet. I think it's just it's just awesome um, what they're doing, and I love the fact of like speaking of archiving. So even though if you put your content with Jekyll five files, easy to get. In order to post something on there, likely you'll be able to you have to pull down a copy and have an updated copy at all times on your local machine, and then you update it and you push it up and you know merge it up. So I like that type of archiving. But the degree of difficulty for someone who's just like you know a regular blogger, let's say, is very high. Yeah. It, it is, and this, this is why I brought up uh, Bastian, who mm -hmm. makes Kirby, because some of the stuff he's been blogging about is kind of how to solve this, how to make it easier for mm -hmm. you know regular folk who aren't technical. Yeah. So he's got some plans. I, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to see him uh, later this month in Germany. Um, we're speaking at an event that's very sort of um, low key, um, cheap event in in, in Germany. Uh, Sort of prompted by Open Device Labs. Do you know what the name of it? It's called Border None. Okay. Border Border None. Geeky. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I need to, I need to write a talk for that as well. But uh, he he's going to be speaking as well. Um, so I, I look forward to, to having chat with him. He's been writing really smart stuff. I found it was fairly easy to use, and it I feel like it's one of those uh, CMSs that helps educate the the day to day blogger on on why things are the way mm -hmm. they are, and it. It's it's just beautiful and yeah. really well, neat. You've got, you've got more ideas about other you know potential tools for yeah. people. It's all well um, documented, which yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, and well, that's good to explaining stuff. I saw something today actually, just um, browsing through some links. Um, James Bridle was working with Mozilla on the they've got like an education platform for for young people. Where I can't remember what it's called, but um, he had done this thing. Was basically it's things called how to see through the cloud, yeah. which was explaining what happens when you type a URL. To a browser and where it goes, and he's showing with you know images from Google Maps where the, where the hops are going, basically explaining you know the cloud thing is a little bit a lot of crap. <laughs> that these are cables and yeah. servers and they're physical and yeah. they have, they have mass yeah. and you know they're in the world, they're not in a cloud. Um, and I really like that. Any any of those kind of things to help explain how stuff works and not have it be this obfuscated magical thing. That's why I, I particularly hate that term, the cloud, because it's it's deliberately deceitful. It's the opposite of what it's describing. Mm -hmm. It's taking something concrete and describing it as something ephemeral, like mm -hmm. somebody else's server. So, you know, it's not like any way like a cloud, um, and yet you can substitute someone else's server for the word cloud anytime. Um, and, uh, and James Bryan often quotes uh, Julian Oliver, who's, who's spoken about this, that people tend to have uh, a children's storybook view of the internet technology because, because so much of it is invisible, mm -hmm. the networks around us, you know, how this stuff works. It's invisible, so we don't have a grasp of it. Like, you ask someone to describe how the postal system works, they can give you a pretty good answer. It's like, yeah, you, I write a letter, it goes in the box, the postman goes. But you ask them how email works, uh, I don't know, magic, right? <laughs> um, and... And when you see people, companies, you know, deliberately trying to amplify that level of obfuscation with the cloud or you know, yeah. 
magic witchcraft server stuff that you know you don't you worry, worry your little head about it. Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's healthy. Well, well can, can you also make could you make an argument that people don't know how their cars work? No, that's true. Well, I think you have a general grasp of of you know the internal combustion engine is the you know that bit in the front and yeah. and. and Gasoline goes in and, and yeah. works. Whereas with computers, it's like literally, or with the internet, I don't know. It's almost like we try to hide uh, how stuff is working. Um, this idea of, of seamlessness as as a goal yeah. in design, I I'm not fond of. I actually think exposing the seams is a good thing. It's 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 kind of an honest thing, and it can be quite beautiful to to show where where technologies hand over to another technology, where the where the seams are. Um, yeah, make, making stuff appear like magic, I'm not sure is necessarily uh, a good goal, despite Arthur C. Clarke's third law. <laughs> yeah. so, I, you spoke about it, I think, um, I, I wasn't at the talk, but everything that I saw that people were tweeting about it was that the cloud is BS, might as well be the moon, I think <laughs> I, was I got the ranty. quote. Yeah, I got, I got a bit ranty, <laughs> and yes, what I do is I mentally substitute the word moon for cloud, mm -hmm. um, because then... Everything makes just as much sense, but it's way more entertaining. Mm -hmm. Like when you're in an airport and all the billboards are about cloud storage and stuff, it's like moon storage. That's yeah. way more fun. That's way more fun. <laughs> but then you just put yeah. moon, you put Death Star, and then you're good. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a Death plugin. Death Star is where all the websites we used to, or the services yeah. we used to use. There's a plugin for Chrome, and I think for Mozilla as well, that will actually do it, um, any instances of the cloud. There's also, for Chrome, there's um, a cloud to butt converter. <laughs> so it will, any instances of the cloud get converted to my butt. Yeah. So like, you know, storage solutions for my butt. Yeah. Store your documents in my butt. Yeah. Way more entertaining. Just as makes just as much sense. See, like, and I just want like a a, a swap for a TLDR. Just put it like in summary. That's <laughs> yeah. all I want. It's just like in summary. I'm, I'm tired of saying that. Uh, TLDR. Seriously. Uh, <sighs> Really, we're pandering to people who don't have time to read the thing that click through to read. I know. Like, well, it was also the fact like, well, I'm glad you have a summary. Call it a summary. Yeah, I guess. Call it I don't abstract. Know. Call me old-fashioned, but I feel like maybe you get rewarded with the summary at the end after yeah. you've read through the thing. Yeah. Meet me halfway, people. <laughs> TLDR. Would you like someone to knock on your door and read the article to you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get that Siri working on that. <laughs> Inject it into my brain. I don't have time to read. <laughs> I'm just here to click on stuff. Just click on stuff. Just click all the things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, with archiving, uh, mm. maybe issues with JavaScript. See, with, with you, know, you can solve JavaScript, and then you can have like Google understand JavaScript to render pages and do all of that. And in theory, you could have you know archive.org have that same spider and stuff like that. But then you know JavaScript is going to change. Exactly. Whereas yeah. HTML has it built in that it's backwards compatible. Right. So yeah. uh, with JavaScript, I mean. Generally, there is a core amount of JavaScript that absolutely will not change. Um, or if, if fairly fundamental stuff changes in JavaScript or ECMAScript, I should say, then there'll be some there'll be a switch uh, to, to enable that. Probably, um, I haven't really been keeping up with the changes in JavaScript, but it's you certainly couldn't rely on the fact that JavaScript from today would necessarily be parsed uh, exactly the same in ten years' time. Whereas you can for HTML, yeah. you can you can absolutely rely on the backwards compatibility. It's it's in there by design. I was. Um, Quoting an old email from Ian Hickson during my talk in the park, exactly about this, that uh, it's not a coincidence. Like the reason why he's documenting the way browsers parse HTML and writing a spec for how to do error handling is specifically so that for future generations, all of this knowledge that we're locking up in HTML documents um, 
be decodable, regardless of whether any browsers exist, that you could make a new browser from scratch. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that HTML is backwards compatible and mm-hmm. still adding new features. It's very right. much by design. Well, yeah, and so this archiving digitization is, is important to me because uh, I actually took a couple of years off the web mm-hmm. and actually was as a manager for a digitization effort of a U.S. senator's um, papers and his, you know, stuff. He was like, oh, he served like one of the longest serving reps in, uh, in Congress. And so he's got like a ton of paperwork from like 1910, 20s, oh. all the way to like 19, late 80s. And so 1980s. And so he was, you know, he was there for Social Security. He was there for. Social Security reform, wow. there for minimum wage, and so he's got like he's got he, he touched a, a lot of star important stuff, U.S. Yeah. policy stuff. So, uh, so you know, I was in charge of like <laughs> digitization of this, and and it's really amazing because uh, I came across all this uh, material that um, uh, that we don't have the hardware yeah to listen to it. And one of them was yeah. a magnetic wire, like a cassette tape, right? Yeah. Before the tape, there was a wire that was magnetic. And so we we discussed whether to buy something off of eBay to buy uh, to listen to the speech so, on my neck wire. So so there's two issues. One is the format, which is what we've been talking about: mm-hmm. HTML, you know, JSON, JavaScript, whatever. And the other is the storage medium. Right? You've got the medium mm-hmm. and the format. And yeah, even if you can still read the, the format, maybe it's stored in a medium that degrades. Yeah. Um, like you got wire, you got tape. And so this is an issue in a lot of a lot of industries and stuff. Um, what worries me actually though is <clears throat> even when they do manage to convert the old media to digital, uh, I worry when I see the mindset of them then thinking, well, we've solved it now. Yeah. Work is done. Like, you see this in the, in the film industry because they had celluloid, which mm-hmm. would degrade and potentially catch fire. Yeah. Right? Um, certainly isn't going to last longer than a century. So there was big digitization efforts to get it digital. And once it was done, it was like, okay, problem solved. Like, no, now you've got two problems. Yeah. Now, how are you storing the digital files? Yeah. Is it magnetic media? Is it CDs, yeah. laser discs? You know, yeah. how are you doing that? Uh, and in what formats yeah. is it stored? In, and are you going to have to change to new formats every ten years? And you have duplicates of it. Yeah, and do you, I mean, you keep yeah, on site, off site? Uh, exactly. Yeah. That. So, that, so that the formats and the storage, that problem doesn't go away when you digitize. Uh-huh. That's that problem will persist. Um, I mean. It's generally going to be a bit easier if it's text files, uh-huh. if it's stored as text files, right. because text files are human readable. You know, just the number of characters in them, you know, they're parsable by a human eye as well as by a machine. Whereas binary files, images, video, and so on, um, are completely opaque to us. They could only be read by machines. And if you lose a bit of a binary file, maybe you can't recover the whole thing. Whereas you can lose a bit of a text file. It's actually perfectly fine. Okay. Um, so I, I get very worried. You know, particularly photography and video. Also, those are areas where historically um, legal restrictions have come into play. So now you've got three things. You've got the formats, you've got the storage problem, and then you have licensing. And the worst case of all is when licensing requirements are bundled together with the format. Mm -hmm. The euphemistically titled DRM, Digital Rights Mm -hmm. Management, where where they they are actively trying to make sure that the format cannot be read in the future. they're guaranteeing obsolescence. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's the most frightening um, part because formats have 
going to degrade anyway, without, with or without adding the licensing uh, restrictions in there. Um, but throwing throwing the licensing into the pot along with the storage mediums and the formats is just a recipe for disaster. Oh, well, because the companies want you to buy the same copy uh, multiple times in your lifetime. Right, that's, and that's and you can understand that for the popular stuff. But right. what happens with that system is that all the stuff that, frankly, they don't care about, and nobody's interested except for you know one or two people mm. are just in preserving the stuff, that that also gets lost. Right. Um, and then it turns out maybe in another 50 years that that is really interesting. Because you don't know now what the future value of something will be. Um, like, you know, some service shuts down today, Posturus or, or Tumblr or something like that, announces it's shutting down, they're really excited, you know, incredible journey. And you think, well, whatever, it was just a bunch of, you know, teenagers blogging their angst or something. It's not important. It's not valuable information. But if one of those teenagers is a future president of the United States, then that becomes historically valuable in the future. And there's no way to predict, right, that um, the pounce account of the first woman to walk on Mars is already lost to us, right? Uh, you can't tell the future value of something. So with, with the studios and, and, and publishers saying, you know, we want to hold on to this stuff, they generally only care about a, a small fraction, the, the, the stuff that makes them money. Yeah. And there's this whole long tail of stuff that, Frankly, they don't care about, but they have to protect because they can't make exceptions. Right? It's got to be a, a, an all-or-nothing situation. Um, and this is why, well, you know, in the 20th century, we've seen copyright law extended yes. to ridiculous levels. So Lawrence Lessig had a brilliant idea, and it did make it as far as the Supreme Court, and he lost, unfortunately, which was you have a copyright term that's that's reasonable. Um, you know, copyright used to be 17 years, and it was you know, a lifetime of author, all this, and now it's effectively perpetuity. Because as soon as Mickey Mouse is coming up for uh, entering the public domain, they lobby, they get it extended. It's just going to be yeah. copyright in perpetuity. Just that, have copyright for a reasonable amount of time. I don't know, 20, 25 years, whatever. Mm. And at that point, if you want to extend your copyright, you pay one penny you know, to extend it for another 25 years. Whatever. Uh, or your, your estate, maybe your debt, your estate pays a penny mm-hmm. to get it extended. But if you don't care or you don't even know anymore, yeah. about this work, uh, it just it just lapses into mm-hmm. the public domain. I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant proposal. That would, that would please everyone, because that would please the studios, too. Right. Right? They would just pay their pennies and, yeah. and you know, a, a dollar nominal amount. Yeah, yeah, just, just something that basically just says, yes, I want to extend it. Yeah. Um, brilliant idea, but uh, maybe maybe ahead of its time. Yeah, and then uh, he's actually suing... Oh yes, uh, copy for YouTube because like fair use. Yeah, fair yes. use because he in his presentation he uses a video um, that someone made like a, a fan video of um, I forget what the I forget what the song is, but he has Breakfast Club clips inside yeah. of this music video, and he uh, and he uses in his presentation fair use, you know, yeah. just critiquing. It's like it's a demonstration yeah. of fair use. Yeah, and so and then he got a robo yeah. email from YouTube saying to get down. So it's the perfect yeah. test case. It's yeah. the perfect one to go to court with. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. Really looking forward to the results of that. Yeah, well, none of that, he said, like, no, I'm using fair use, and they relented. I'm not sure how long the discussion took place, but they relented. And now he's actually going after them and saying, like, no, you're actually using copyright law wrong because yeah. you're just blindly looking and just saying, if you're using my song, therefore it's bad. You're not looking at what's actually happening. So it's so you're not Oh, I've got, I got the MCA takedown notices yeah. for sites I run that just happened to have a string of text in there that was similar to a string that some... Some guy is just you know, doing a Google search, yeah. sucking back thousands of documents and sending Google a DMCA takedown notice for thousands of URLs, yeah. which Google then blindly follows. But to be fair, Google will inform you 
yeah. and Google will post a request on chillingeffects.org mm-hmm. so you can see. But yeah, people are u- completely abusing the yeah. MCA and, mm-hmm. and using it like a machine gun, just a scattergun approach. Yeah. Take it all down, yeah. um, <clears throat> which is illegal. Like, yeah. if you were to go after them and say, like, you, you in good faith, you know, yeah. did not know that that was infringing, and yet you sent that, you know, you could be punished for doing that. Yeah, so is, is armation in good faith? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, but yeah, anyway, back to the uh, the the licensing issue and uh, and studios and stuff. It's uh, it just it adds in just one more factor that makes makes this part of our our history. I mean, our history in terms of the human race um, kind of fragile. That we may end up having this great big uh, digital memory hole. Right. You know, at the end of the 20th century, start of the 21st century, but we're still figuring stuff out. Yeah, you have like, like I saw a uh, telegram from Dizzy Arnaz to this representative. Like, I'm like actually holding it in my hand, like with gloves, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, oh my god. And that's a piece of history. Like, you know, I'll never hold an email like like that, you know, in my hands. The the telegraph is a fantastic uh, invention. And there was initially. One of the telegraph operators here in the U- U.S. were thinking that maybe they did need to store every single telegram that was ever sent, yeah. which I think they tried for a while, um, didn't didn't really scale. Um, but it, there's a terrific book by Tom Standage called The Victorian Internet. Uh-huh. Highly recommend it. It's about the telegraph, um, and you realize what a world changing technology it was. More, I think, more world changing than the web. I'm yeah. a huge fan of the web, as you know. But um, what the web has done. The internet is on as well, email and other internet um, tools. It's accelerated things, and it's made you know it's it's, it's collapsed geographic distance. Um, but it's allowed us to do stuff we were already doing, but do it faster, do it better, do it more efficiently. Whereas the telegraph actually kind of fundamentally changed the world. It changed how people viewed the world, how people thought of distance, how people thought of time. Um, yeah. You know, the War of 1812, the Battle of New Orleans, was fought after a peace treaty had already been signed and went, right? Um, they didn't know that that news hadn't traveled. Whereas by the end of that century, in the Crimean War, people are opening their newspapers and, and getting reports of what happened on the battlefield, you know, from the day before. There's this ridiculous change in, 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 in this, this conception of the world and uh, the laying of the transatlantic cable, you know, epochal change in... In my account. and it's it's anyway. I could geek out about the telegraph. I, I just I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, the Victorian Internet by Tom, Tom Standage is, is it's pretty terrific. Okay, yeah. Check that one. So that kind of brings me up as like, um, yeah, because like I bring I bring up the telegraph because like um, I didn't know anything about this representative when mm. before I took a job. I just walked in there. I learned so much about American history by physical media that didn't need uh, electricity, needed, except for the stuff like you know. Magnetic wire, you know, and uh, VHS tapes, but you know, there's papers. There's tons of papers, and actually go through it. And now that um, our news is like, I can't find news articles I want in 2001 because CNN hadn't really got on their game yet, and it's all transition. But most most libraries yeah. have coverage of the Kennedy assassination, assassination, but not the Obama inauguration. Yeah, because because of the media, because of rights restrictions, right. all of that stuff. So that gets me to the point of like NSA and how awesome it is that they're copying the internet. It's fantastic. We've yeah. all got backups. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> if only they'd release them. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, there's actually court cases, which I'm pretty sure they were destined for failure, yeah. is that uh, like people are being sued. And they're actually petitioning NSA. Yeah, yeah, to prove. To say, so they prove like the internet because they have a copy of some email yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And My alibi like, is I, you know, I sent this email. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
you can prove it by just getting the NSA to yeah, verify. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. We so. could start a new branch at the NSA. <laughs> Customer support. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll, That'll, That'll go over yeah. well. <laughs> Let me just pull that up for you. <laughs> But yeah, the digitization thing of having, you know, uh, analog stuff, trying to get that digital, that, that happens in a lot of fields. I was talking about physicists last week. This, um, he was at Slack down in Stanford, the particle accelerator, which is, I believe, it was the second web server ever in the world, was, it, was at Slack. Um, and they've got, the, you know, data from experiments going back decades, but, you know, it's in old formats. Maybe it's digital, but it's, again, you know, it's on stored on some medium they can't get hold of. And, yeah. Uh, it's really worrying. You know, he was he was asking me about this. You know, is it safe to throw some of this stuff away? But then I was pointing out you don't know the future value of past yeah, data. Exactly. Um, on the plus side, we got Moore's law, so storage should you know just get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't solve the the medium problem. It doesn't solve the format problem. You know, how is it stored? And again, same with the, you know NASA. They've got uh, stuff from the sixties from the Apollo program that they can't read. Mm -hmm. because because the format's thin because of the medium that it's in the main thing with all of this stuff and you know whether it's whether it's NASA or physicists or film or politics or people just posting you know stuff to a third party service on posters or pants or whatever the main thing is to realize the problem exists yeah that's I mean it's easy to get very hopeless about this and like oh it's an overwhelming problem but actually the biggest issue is just acknowledging the problem exists because by far the most insidious sort of virus mm. that spread culturally is this meme that the internet never forgets. Yeah. People say it like a truism. Yeah. They say it like it's it's unquestioned. Everyone knows the internet never forgets. Yeah. Be careful what you put online because once it's up there, it never goes away. Right. Again, that's, it's like the cloud. That's the complete opposite of what the data shows us. Mm-hmm. Like the average life span of a, of a web page is, is months. Yeah. Um, Data, the stuff disappears all the time. The internet forgets all the time. The idea that oh, Google will never forget, and Facebook will never forget. You know, I would not rely on right. on that. The idea that you know they they'll never go away. They're too big to fail. And like I said, GeoCities was the third most visited site right. on the web. And that's gone. Well, like and people are publishing so much on the web. You know, it becomes critical. But also, as that becomes uh, cheaper, uh, printing becomes more expensive. Yeah. And so it's actually like you like I see like a lot of bands will make. Especially the bigger bands will make a specialized, you know, LPs, you know, vinyl and some of that, as well as special books to go along with their albums. And I find, you know, for fans and collectors to, to buy, I find those really interesting because it's like they're trying to upsell you for yeah. one, but also if you're like, well, you're actually making a Polaroid or and a snapshot see, I, that doesn't need electricity. Like you're, yeah, the, the, yeah, the retro thing. I, I get it, and I actually see web people doing the same thing. Like people who are, you know, confronting the mortality of their digital works and yeah. realizing, oh, that first website I built is gone, long gone. Yeah. And so they start making uh, magazines of screen prints. You know, I see a lot of designers doing this. It's, I'm starting a new magazine about typography. Or I'm starting, right. yeah. you know, I'm making craft beer or coasters or whatever. Um, and so I understand that need as a reaction to the perceived impermanence of digital. But I also feel like it's a bit of a cop-out. Yeah. I feel like it's running away from the problem and saying, oh, you know what, preserving this digital stuff is hard. Let's go shopping. Or yeah. Let's go <laughs> making. <laughs> right? um, I, I, I should, it's being, looking I'm back being, in, the, in the past. It's just turning away. It's turning away out. from the problem and yeah. saying, I, I can't figure out how to solve the problem of the stuff I build online disappearing. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to make a nice print yeah. magazine instead. Mm-hmm. It's it's not confronting the problem. Yeah. It's running away from. It. Although you know, people are free to do whatever they want. Um, 
But then it kind of reinforces the idea that this this is an unsolvable problem, which mm-hmm. I don't believe it is, because like I said, I think the biggest first step is acknowledging the problem even exists. And if, mm-hmm. if more people did that, and if more people did question, you know, when a service or a, a whatever company says, oh, it's online, it's all fine, that they push back and say, well, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Just saying something is online is not good enough. Right. You know, tell me your plans for five years, ten years. Tell me how, how the data is stored, what formats in, what medium is it. Right. Um, those people started doing that more, started questioning more. They wouldn't be so shocked when you know services shut down and take their data with them. Yeah, and even like like kind of rule of thumb is like uh, if you if the user service service that's free, then you are the yeah. Except like I content. said, I was but then for yeah, yeah. using that. So even then, it's it comes yeah. Soon. Even then, even then, yeah. So but so it's definitely like own your own space, or, or at the very least, go in with your eyes open. Yeah, understand that when you give something to a third party, there is no guarantee that you know it's there forever. Or they will get it back to you. If that one line was just the terms and conditions, I feel like yeah. people would actually read that. Keep your eyes open. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, just like we make no guarantee. Yeah, jump feet first. Yeah. Awesome. You know, it's interesting because because you were talking about you know Independence Day and all that stuff. Like this, we used to do this. If we wanted to put something online, we put it online. Yeah, didn't ask for anyone's permission. You know, we just put it online, make our own website. Yeah. And yeah, it's a bit geeky because you have to know how to put something, you know, FTP something to a server, uh-huh. buy a domain name, all that. Um, but it was it was the norm, right? Yeah. That was the norm was you published on your own site. And it was, you know, cool new sites came along where you could publish to those sites. Like Flickr came along and all that. And that was cool. But still, the norm was you published on your own site. I kind of see a whole generation where their norm is publishing on a third-party site. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, there was, uh, what's that site, Branch. Uh, mm-hmm. Opened up a while back, where you kind of have conversations. Uh, um, I've never tried it out because it asks write permissions to my Twitter account, which it doesn't need, so I refuse, <laughs> I refuse to give it. And I encourage everyone else to be very wary of yes. what services they give write you like permissions to. Like the post your Facebook thing. No, yeah, okay. no thank you. Um, but anyway, so the young guy um, running it, he started a thread because he was genuinely curious um, why people wouldn't just post a branch. Because mm. some people were saying, well, I'll, I'll write this on my own site. He was genuinely curious, which I really respected, that he wanted to know uh, why would you feel that way because surely all, all we do all the time is post to third-party sites because he had grown up with MySpace and then Facebook oh, yeah. and then Twitter. Yeah. That's all he'd ever known. Yeah. And so there was some more old-school bloggers like, like Anil Dash and Gina Trapani are, are explaining, well, it's about owning the data or like it being your decision, you know, when it gets destroyed, rather than a third-party decision. Uh, right, so, so, so like how papers like uh, an upsell or a value-add Running your own blog is now like weird. That's awesome. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So the whole uh, indie web movement. Yeah. You know, we get together these indie web camps. We're like this uh, weird extremist group. You know? <laughs> so, like the, the the radical idea yeah. that you would own your own website yes. and publish to your own website is like that's crazy talk. Yeah. But yeah, you remember it used to be the norm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the normal way of doing it. Yeah. I got a, I got a question for you, Chris. Oh, digital uh, digital uh, preservation. So. Where's High Five? That is a good question. You're not the first one to ask me that, but uh, great stories on my case. He's yeah. uh, runs Chicago uh, Austin, and so uh, I'm glad you asked. That makes me feel uh, warm fuzzies inside. So. Uh, high five! You know, yeah. when I was first getting online, learning to be yeah. a web designer, <laughs> high five was terrific. Oh man, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, speaking of archiving, it is on a zip disk. A zip disk. It's <laughs> sitting on a zip disk. I saved it. Uh, it's also on a CD-ROM somewhere. I have to go find it. So I told Greg, "Is like." Um, it's in a box. You got storage unit. So, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, it would it, give me such warm fuzzies. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's. You have no idea. Like, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, 
you know, it's, you know, for people who don't know, Hi-Fi was started by Dan yeah. Siegel and he hired people like, I was like the third producer, I think, yeah. after, after two, two others and something. And, uh, it was just, you know, we're, every, every week we would either interview a designer, uh, critique a website. I think every week we critique a website yeah. and then we'd have some other feature going on at the same time. So it's... It's really magazine style, right? Every issue yeah. had its own kind of look and feel. Yeah. And, uh, Do you know about this, Sam? This no. Uh, oh, wow. This is a piece of web history. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Greg's on me and actually... Uh, but he's actually offered to hire people to go look through my stuff to go find <laughs> it. Great. So, uh, so yeah, I'm not uh, Yeah, there you go. So... Uh, now that you you're on on the on, on my back about it, I'll, I'll make another effort to get, get it. But yeah, yeah, I was just thinking like while we're talking, like you know, I'll just find that dang thing and just put it on GitHub and then slowly we'll exactly. convert to Jekyll or something like that, or like and we'll just branch it and the original file will still be in the master branch upload first one. So if you want to go back to the original. It would be wow. like it would be like the opposite of .NET magazine. Yes, we were storing <laughs> this great magazine oh, from uh, so, over ten years ago. Yeah, but the, but HiFi was before Blogger. Yeah, before before anything. I mean, before anything. You have no idea how much if I had WordPress back then, how much I would like how much HiFi would be different. And, uh, like because like most of my time was producing was actually like yeah, production, like writing, like, yeah. not just interviewing people, but it was just like. Writing the HTML. Yeah. So yeah. No, I remember there was those high five and, and Zelman had to ask Dr. Webb. Yes. And and WebMonkey was around by then. Right? Yes. That, that was, was how I learned. Yeah, WebMonkey. Yeah. yeah. Which did that just get taken? Yeah, but it was sort of quietly. So the, oh, man. the monkey fell off, fell off the web recently. Yeah, well we'll just talk about that, that net magazine, which I felt like um, they were you know, Oliver is uh, was part of the team there, I'm not sure. The organizational chart, but I know he's you know big editor figure. in chief. Uh, yeah. And so I felt like they were kind of like, you know, that magazine is a different, I guess, organization. And then, but I felt so they were slowly merging the two in terms of visual identity. Right, with Creative Block. block. Yeah, Creative yeah. Block. And so they just moved everything from the .NET brand over to Creative Block. Not everything. It, not everything. Not, not everything, sorry. Was, yes. I think 500 articles. Yeah, the top over. 500, which is great. Great uh, editorial cho- choice is to look at stats yeah. and just go for that, not for the... <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I want to give them the credit, yeah. you know, Benefited the doubt, and I know they're good people. Oh, they're they, awesome they people. Handled yeah. it, they handled it really badly. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just suddenly sprung on everyone. Oh, yeah. And, and then they also brought up licensing issues, right? They don't, have, they don't necessarily have the rights to you know, throw it all up on GitHub or something. Oh, yeah. That's um, right, yeah. And, you know, there's not many people working on it, blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. it, it was handled pretty badly. And, and, and I think more than that, it's, it's kind of going to have a bad effect on their trust, Community. Yeah. Next time somebody's asked to write an article for them, yeah. like, well, why why would I write an article for you? Um, who knows when to disappear? And I thought they were just, they were chugging along and doing great. They were like having yeah. a great and, brand. And, well, this weird thing, creative block, is not some thing I consider you know as this you know yeah. authoritative place on the web. Whereas .NET it was kind of kind of becoming that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet they decided to. Mm-hmm. If anything, I would imagine merging creative block with .NET, not yes. the other way around. Right. Uh, maybe I'm I'm seeing it from a skewed perspective. Or keep them the same. Keep them the same. I, I keep their own identities. Yeah, just keep, yeah, keep them separate. Yeah, and then just link back and forth and have a field day with that. So I don't. Yeah. I don't. We're not there. We, we don't. Yeah, we, decisions. we don't. We don't know the whole story. Today. So I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to be you know, pointing the finger and, yeah. and saying fail like exactly the stuff I was. I was decrying <laughs> earlier. Yeah, so yeah. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> uh, so definitely, rule rule is own your own stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've published articles on other sites, but then I republished them on the Dactio. Yeah, um, that's fine. Which, yeah. when you did that for the the pastry box mm. project, um, one that was the first time I'd ever seen that. 
I posted this here, and I think the conversation was about self-publishing too. It was about I, well, it was kind of, <laughs> everyone should write. Everyone should should write on share yeah. what they're doing, yeah. etc. Yeah. Um, so of course I'm going to post it to my own site yeah. as well. I was writing an article recently for a new magazine that's coming along, and I just you know made it clear that you know I'm going to want to publish this on my own site. Yeah. They're cool with that it was after a little grace period. I think mm-hmm. you know agree yeah. on a, a week or two weeks or something, and then. Mm-hmm. So I, I usually consider the canonical copy to be the one that's that's on my own site. Right. If that disappears, it'll be my own fault. Yeah. You know, it'll be, I can't blame anyone else then. Um, I usually publish uh, transcripts of talks as well. If talks are recorded, um, I get them transcribed and publish them there, just so that there's a you know searchable, yeah. a findable version of the talk, rather than having it locked up in, again in binary formats. Right. And, Party yeah, it's about accessibility. Like, it's that's sad, and that's one of the things we have to catch up on at numbering spaces, transcribing all our backlog. And stuff. Well, he, well, here's the thing: I don't necessarily think it needs to be only your problem. So, like I said, I transcribe my talks at a conference. And right. I, I haven't done a reason, but I encourage other speakers, mm-hmm. you know, if this talk's been recorded, to get their talk transcribed. Yeah. And that way, the onus isn't on the conference organizer to transcribe, right. you know, 10, 20 talks, which is a lot of work. It's like one person transcribed one talk. Yeah. Um, the talk you gave and then suddenly the workload is distributed and I do feel it with, with podcasts as well it's like it's a lot of onus on the, the podcasters to transcribe every single episode yeah. but maybe if you have some way of, of, of dividing that up of, of having you know a, a team of people or, or maybe um, you know it's sponsored or something like that yeah. but I don't I, I know it's a lot of pressure on a very small group of people to yeah. try and transcribe everything right. and whenever I see that pattern of like oh there's so much pressure on, on one particular bottleneck I try and look for ways to, to spread that spread right. the because mm-hmm. that's what the web's great at I mean that's what the web was made for is collaboration right. so any opportunity to say you know is there a way we can do this in a, in a more wiki like manner or you know github like way of doing things where the huge advantage is collaboration and not having one person be a bottleneck yeah, well, I think I heard one one uh, podcast like back in the day, several years now, is that uh, they throw a podcast and then all their fans mm. would uh, do like a line here and there on yeah. the wiki page, and then just slowly they would have it right there. I, I ended up doing something yeah, like that for a talk. Yeah. Um, so normally I have a professional uh, transcriber, but I was curious to whether that model would work. So I just put the call on Twitter: who would be interested in transcribing? I think I said ten minutes. Yeah. So once I have you know six people for an hour long talk. In retrospect, I think five minutes is is plenty. Ten minutes yeah. is actually quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, did that kind of spliced it together. Everyone came back with their their five minutes. Yeah. Um, or maybe I could do double blind and have two <laughs> people do every five minutes, and then if one of them was late with it, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Or run a diff as a way of finding uh, <laughs> typos or something. Um, but yeah, that you know another way of spreading spreading the work around. Use Siri. Use Siri. Oh man. It'll change all the rules. Um, and I guess you know we've, we've talked all the time, but I do want to talk about. I have absolutely no idea what you're doing, sir. <laughs> so please let us know. I, I, I could tell you, but I have to kill you. Oh man! Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just no. keep on going. No, um, this is about the God part, right? Yeah, I discovered the fundamental nature of money. No, it was this really fundamental. Um, let me see. let me let me back up. Okay, let me back up. I was in CERN last year actually for a visit. Semi work related, but mostly it was just an excuse to go to CERN. Yeah. Uh, I got to see the Atlas experiment. I was just in seventh heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, because first of all, I'm a science geek, right. and it's like the greatest experiment ever in the history of our species, and that's magnificent. And also, it's where the web was born. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. huge web geek. So I was absolutely thrilled. And um, then I met up with Mark Bolton, and he started, he sort of took me aside, knowing I'm big into digital preservation and 
URLs and, and all of this to tell me that because he's working with CERN right, on the website, um, one of the projects they're doing internally was restoring the very first web page uh, to its original URL, Tim Berners-Lee's first website, first ever web server, which I was just like, oh, that's brilliant, like that, that's everything coming full circle, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. that was fantastic, he was so excited. And then later, so they did that, and that was fantastic, and they've written about it on the CERN blog, it was great. Later he took me aside and told me about another project they were planning, kind of along those lines, again, trying to, trying to drive home the history of the web to recreate one of the early web browsers, not the world's first web browser, because um, that was World Wide Web, but that only ran on the next machine, um, but the first web browser that could run on multiple systems, which was a huge boost to explaining the web or showing the power mm -hmm. of it, to recreate that in a modern browser. Mm -hmm. So you go to a URL and you could experience what it was like to use this line mode browser, which was very primitive because it was text only. You couldn't click on links. You had to type in everything. Um, but you could browse hypertext. Um, so Mark then asked if I'd be involved in organizing an event like that because, you know, I've, I organized Science Hack Day a few years ago and at Clear Left we have these hack farms we do every year which, you know, involves hacking on something for a week. And so I've had some experience of being involved in these, these kind of gatherings. <clears throat> so what we decided to do is we gathered together about a dozen people, uh -huh. 10, 12 people, make half of them sort of invited experts, people that we know their skill sets would definitely be useful, and the other half people could apply. Uh -huh. So that's what we did, you know, I sort of put the call out to people. I thought, oh, we've got to have this, you know, <laughs> Remy Sharp, we've got to have him, and, uh -huh. uh, and also Leah Veru. We need, you know, we need a, someone who could really kick ass at CSS, like, you know, put the bat signal into the sky for Leah Veru, because she's really awesome. Uh, <clears throat> and then, you know, allowed people to apply for the other positions. So we got Terrific people like those. Uh, Martin was from Kenya, and Angela was from France. Uh, yeah, people from all over. Mm -hmm. That was just terrific. Um, so a bunch of people from all over the world. John Alsop came from Australia. Wow. Um, Craig Maud applied, and he got through. Brian Larue. Mm -hmm. Canada. So just terrifically smart people. And we get together at CERN. So first of all, we're just all geeking out. Right. And now we get to have this Hack Day project to recreate this clunky old browser in mm -hmm. a modern browser. And uh, the first thing we're there, um, they wheel in this old IBM machine they've unearthed from a computer museum in Lausanne, which is which was running the old line mode process. Oh, wow. It's like this machine from 1990, I mm -hmm. guess. And it still worked. Oh, wow. You could turn it on, and you could feel like the clunkiness of the keyboard, and yeah. <clears throat> you know, how the typeface looked in that raster screen. Mm -hmm. That was actually really, really good. That really helped us figure out you know, what the experience was we're trying to recreate. Um, so it was just a lot of fun. I mean, on one, one hand, it's just a really silly little project, yeah. right? you know, recreating this thing. It's just some crazy stuff. So Brian, Brian Suda is uh, trying to figure out, Brian and Mark, they're, they're font geeks. They're looking at the font in this old machine. Like, what is this? Like career, it's a font, but look at the L's. They're kind of curly. Or something. What is this? And they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, so they figured it was some system font that just you know, no longer exists. Right. So Brian types every character on the keyboard. Yeah, takes a photograph of the screen. Oh, he sends it to the web. No, he imports it into Illustrator. Okay. He makes a font <laughs> over the course of, of the hack event. He <laughs> makes a new font. That's awesome. So which is now on GitHub. Yeah. You can, you can, and uh, oh, and also John Hansop recorded the sound of the keys. Yeah. Being tapped like that clunky. Um, so when if you go to the line mode browser simulator, you can go to line-mode.cern.ch yeah. and click on the button to launch it. As you type. And this, oh, this is ridiculous animation, yeah. you know, because it has stuck its drawn screen. It's all very silly, but 
when it was done, we were actually, you know, browsing around the very first website yeah. using this machine. It was something to it. It was quite immersive. Yeah. It really did feel like you were experiencing what it was like mm-hmm. at the time. Oh, and what was really just not so at the beginning yeah. of it, the first day, we get a little pep talk from Robert Caillou, who was co-creator of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee's manager at the time, who was quite a character, mm-hmm. and telling us about, you know, what it was like then, and... and also ranting about all the things he wished had gone differently after that, but uh, it's fascinating. And actually, just recently on the flight over, because um, I need a book for takeoff and landing when I'm not allowed to use my electronic devices, <laughs> I've been rereading Weaving the Web by uh-huh. Tim Berners-Lee, or maybe maybe ghost-written uh, Tim Berners-Lee. And there I'm reading about exactly this time and exactly this place. He's describing the place, you know, the uh-huh. corridors we were walking down. <laughs> so it was just a, a fantastic little event. I didn't contribute that much to the line mode browser itself, but we also kind of had a storytelling side explaining what are we doing here? What was the line mode browser? And most of my contributions were words, right. you know, just writing that, a bit of image optimization, yeah. that kind of stuff. And then the second day, we get taken on a tour. We get go down into the Large Hadron Collider and we get oh. a tour of the LHCB experiment. Oh, that's crazy. Crazy Hungarian physicists describing <laughs> how the detectors work. Yeah. And that was just terrific. Those so, were the pictures of you with the hard hats? Yes. And yeah. All that. Yeah, all those pictures look ridiculous because I'm wearing my future-friendly T-shirt, which has a helmet on it, yeah. and then I have a helmet on my head. So yeah. it's like <laughs> all the helmets in every picture. Oh, yeah. But it was it was just a terrific experience, and I'm I'm really pleased with, with what we did in such a short space of time. Yeah. You know, I say we, I really did. You know, Remy and Brian Leroux were were, were the uh, doing the hardcore. Node.js, you know, <laughs> parsing and stuff. But there was some really interesting stuff came out of that. So I blogged this recently. There was some decisions we made, like so. Um, Entities just show up like and amp ampersand shows up on the screen. That's deliberate because that browser would not have parsed right. those named entities. Also, there's a lot of websites you go to using this line mode browser, and the first thing you see is a bunch of JavaScript output to the screen. Like maybe your you know, type font tech you know, mm-hmm. JavaScript appears at the top. We deliberately didn't hide that. We yeah. deliberately show that because that's what would have happened. Right. Mm-hmm. JavaScript didn't exist. The script element didn't, didn't exist. And as we were saying earlier, if a browser sees an element that doesn't exist, it ignores it and just shows the content, right? right? right. Which reminded me, and you'll remember this too, Chris, when we wrote JavaScript back in the day, yeah. we used to always begin with the common, yeah. with the HTML common, yeah. which is allowed at the beginning of a JavaScript file, mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't be output to the screen right. of the browser. And at some point we stopped doing that, mm-hmm. uh, which is fair enough because you know, it's not, not a great practice. But it suddenly brought it back. I hadn't thought about that in years. Oh, yeah. How we used to comment our JavaScript, you know. The, and then for XHTML, it was the C data. Yeah, it's right? like the weird funky string. Bringing a bunch yeah, of strings, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. incantations we put in our JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. So it was bringing back all this stuff. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was really, really, really fun. Yeah, I'm just glad we have JavaScript, JavaScript source now. And just, yeah, just, just put in. Because those comments really just threw me for a loop. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm putting HTML comments in my... Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, um, I just, you do great blog posts, uh, you do great presentations, and I just want to ask, what goes into, you know, we're at Event Apart, Austin, and you've been speaking at Event Apart for a while, and just, how do, how do you, what, um, we've been asking this of uh, Spool and Cameron Crane, and stuff like that, just, like, how do you go about preparing for a presentation? Panic. Panic, okay. Fear. How panic. long does that usually last? Months of Until, <laughs> months until of the fear. presentation's over. Until, yeah. Um, so what happens is, you know, event part, whatever, will ask me to speak, which is you know, a huge honor. But they'll be asking me like, maybe a year in advance because, you know, they kind of plan it. Mm-hmm. 
and they ask me for talk title and description you yeah. know, well ahead of time. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Yeah, it feels like South by in a way because like South by just wrapped up their call for papers and they're just voting or whatever. And it was just like, we're still like six, yeah. nine months out. I don't understand. Like, yeah. So I send back the vaguest talk title and the vaguest description I can come up with. And so, yeah, so this one was like, the long web. And, and it's, I don't know. It's like, the web, what's that all about? Um, <laughs> yeah, so that I can basically write anything and make it fit the, mm-hmm. the vague, vague description. I think last year's talk was the spirit of the web. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> well, that could be anything. So I'll be safe. Um, don't tell Jeffrey this. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's you Just, this. Okay, it's between you. Yeah, <laughs> no one's going to know. Yeah. Um, and then um, I panic for, for months and, and think about it. And I pace. I pace a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of pacing. Um, my wife recognizes now when like when I'm doing a talk because she, she notices I'm pacing mm-hmm. up and down. She's like, you're, you're preparing a talk in your head, aren't you? Um, and then I do exactly what you're not supposed to do. So it's like writing. In writing, the, there's this idea of you know, shitty first drafts. Right. Uh, where what you got to do is just dump everything down onto the page and then go back and edit. Yeah. Because it's much easier to write and edit and edit and edit than it is to write and edit at the same time. Oh, my gosh, yes. Right? So you shouldn't be you know, slaving over every line you're going to bring. I know that. I know that intellectually. I know that, you know, but it, I can't do it. Yeah. When I'm writing, I'm like, ah, no, actually, I'm going to start yeah. writing. It's the worst thing to do. And with talks, it's kind of similar. What I should be doing is, you know, getting down the broad brushstrokes on paper or something and then you know going back and moving around and instead I'm kind of just got all this stuff going around in my mind which is the worst place for it right you actually need to get it down onto paper or post-it notes and at some point I will like you know just do a brain dump maybe onto the wall with post-it notes but uh, when I then open up Keynote I, I don't know something happens I don't know maybe yeah I, I kind of know what I want to say as I'm putting the Keynote together I Okay, so let me. What I think is the biggest challenge of a good talk, but also kind of one of the most important points, in my opinion, is crafting a good narrative. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing is you're telling a story, ideally, because that's what people pay attention to. As human beings, we're wired um, to enjoy stories, to pay attention to stories. We're not really wired to listen to facts or enumerated, you know, bullet lists of, of items. So you need to find a way to take. That's essentially enumerated bullet list of items and turn it into a story, turn it into something that's got narrative. And that's a challenge because sometimes I'll, I'll have these topics that I, I want to cover both of them in the same talk. And I have to think, how do I get from, from here to here? How do I get from A to B? How do, what's the thread? Right. What's the segue mm-hmm. there? And that, those, joining those things up, I think, is, is the really hard bit. I guess maybe it's like screenwriting or something. Like, how does the character get the hotel downtown to the mm-hmm. ship or something, right? Um, so I find myself spending a lot of time on that, but mm-hmm. that then pays off because ideally people don't notice that. It's mm-hmm. just like you're carrying them along on the story. So I tend not to like talks where it's, you know, 10 things about X, yeah. thing one. And now you, they, they've given you the structure at the beginning. Right. So there's no sense of mystery, there's no sense of threat, there's no sense of surprise because you know that what's coming next is thing two, yeah. and uh, probably three yeah. after that. And, and you know how long you have okay. to go because we're at number seven, and you said that the start of the number could be ten. Okay. Um, there's a lot of advice out about giving talks. It seems quite outdated to me, like the whole thing of where you, you get up and say who you are and why you should be giving this talk. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Just get straight down to yeah, it. Yeah, they yeah. can read the program. Yeah. And then it's like, 
say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said, right? That's yeah, the three thing. times approach. Right, right. Yeah. three times is what you yeah. learned that in college, I guess. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so no, it's like, spoilers, you're, you're giving away the whole plot yeah. ahead yeah. of time, yeah. and then you're boring them at the end by recapping what you just did. Right. It's like, no, for me, it's, it's about making a narrative, and I find it really hard mm-hmm. to do that, yeah. um, but if I can get it, it's, yeah. really, it's really rewarding, mm-hmm. because and then I can take people and cover a range of topics that pretty unconnected but I found a way to connect them right. it's like did you ever see an old TV show Connections with James Burke no. it, was, it was very webby it was kind of very hyperlinky in its way it used to be on PBS in the States it's an English show but uh, he would do that way of connecting these, these apparently completely unconnected events in history or in science or something and there's, there's a real pleasure to that somehow of like drawing drawing the links between the stuff it's, yeah it's kind of like hypertext in a way so some of my favorite blog posts you know from other people or ones I've written have been ones that join together things that maybe weren't previously connected yeah. like I'm linking to something over here which reminds me of this thing over here and also you know this third thing which nobody's thought about as being connected to those right. two other things and then the blog post is kind of something new because it's connected stuff together so I hope when I'm putting the talk together that I managed to you know, connect a bunch of different stuff. I'm always pretty convinced that my talks are basically just rambling collections <laughs> of unconnected stuff, often stuff I just want to rant about, right. which happens you know, over the course of the, the talk. Um, also, I, don't, I generally don't prepare you know, word for word okay. what I'm going to say. I, I have actually done that occasionally where I've written out the entire talk and presented it that way, um, maybe three or four times, yeah. ever. Uh, for a specific kind of talk, certainly not a developer talk or a design talk. It would be maybe more big thinky concept talk. But generally what I try and do is have beats. Like, I know I'm going to talk about this now for a minute or two, and then I'm going to talk about this for a minute or two once I've got my segue. But I won't have written down exactly what I'm going to say. And, and sometimes I get surprised by what comes out of my mouth, or sometimes I don't even realize what I've said, and then I... When the talk's done, I read Twitter, and I'm like, I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember saying that. Yeah. You know, it's like, that sounds terrible, or that sounds great. Yeah. Um, what I'll do is I'll put in my notes um, where I expect I should be time-wise. Yeah. So by a certain you know, number of slides in, I'll just have a note to myself saying, 10 minutes, question mark, mm-hmm. or later on, 20 minutes, question mark. And the point there is that um, if I'm reach that point where I'm supposed to be around 10 minutes and actually I'm five minutes, then I know I can pad, I can, you know, I right. can take my time and, and mm-hmm. talk. But if it's supposed to be 10 minutes and it's already 15 minutes, I know I need to speed it up. And why I do that throughout is so that what you don't end up with is right at the end, you know, so, oh, crap, I've still got 20 more slides to cover in two minutes. Yeah. Or the opposite, where, oh, no, I'm two minutes from the end of my presentation and there's a half an hour left of, the, yeah. of time. So by having those beats throughout, I kind of adjust accordingly. And I'll kind of be looking at the thing, oh, yeah, I've got time for a good rant now. <laughs> I can rant about something here for a bit. Or uh, I'm going to skip straight over the rant I could do and jump to the next point or something. And do you have these rants just, like, just pre-made and ready to roll at any time? Or just, uh... That's basically nothing to do with public speaking. That's just me. <laughs> That's just, yes, I'm full of rants. I know. I, I think people have this uh, idea of me as being quite an angry person, which... I'm not, but I can understand if that impression were given because certain subjects, I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll get quite ranty about. Right. Um, but I can't help it. And does um, have you always been a writer, or has your blog helped you at all? Or yeah, I, it's taken me a long time to get comfortable with calling myself 
a writer. Because yeah. it's like, I'm not a writer. Writers write. I don't right. write. Yeah. You know, people who write, write. But, um, you know, for writing the blog, that's not, that's not real writing, but it's writing. Yeah. Uh, and then the book and all that, even then, you know, obviously it felt like a complete fake because, you know, <laughs> I don't write books. People write books, write books. Yeah. But after a while, I started realizing, you know what? People are enjoying what I'm writing. Yeah. Or I get a pleasure out of writing something sometimes. I'm like, no, that, that felt quite good. Yeah. Know, that felt satisfying. Why shouldn't I call myself a writer? And also, sometimes I would read, quote unquote, professional writing and think, this is really bad. Yeah. You know, a lot of journalism is, is, is not good writing. And, or a lot of popular, you know, books, fiction and nonfiction is, is I read and I go, I, I think I can call myself a writer if this, if this is, you know, and I've, I've really grown to appreciate good um, writers, good communicators, even if they aren't necessarily um, the most knowledgeable in their subject. Right. I've come to realize that that's not what's important. So in, in web terms, you could be the best JavaScript in the world, you could be the best person with CSS, that does not mean you're going to be able to explain it well. Right. Uh, when I wrote DOM scripting, you know, it's very much for people beginning JavaScript, that's because I was beginning JavaScript. Mm -hmm. I, could, I could relate to that. When, uh, when Andy Budd was right, learning CSS, he wrote what he was learning. And right. I remember thinking, because I'd done CSS years before, I remember seeing his blog posts and thinking, oh, why would you write that? That seems kind of obvious to me. And of course, it wasn't obvious. I'd just forgotten yes. uh, what it was like not to know that stuff. Yeah. So he would get comments, people going, this is great. I'm so glad you wrote this. Right. I was like, oh. So Andy kind of became established as a CSS expert yeah. uh, and wrote the book, CSS Mastery, not because he learned CSS and then wrote about it, but because he wrote about it as he was learning. Yeah. So this idea that that viewpoint is actually really, really important. That I'm yeah. just, I've just figured this out. Here's what I figured out. And sure, you, maybe you'll get somebody on the internet, you know, on Twitter, and a comment will go, yeah, that's obvious. What's yeah. the point of writing this? And, you know, screw them, basically. Yeah. Uh, because there's equally, there's, there's 10, 20 people who are going, thank you for writing this. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, and people like me or, or other people who maybe we knew that stuff and we wouldn't have thought of writing it. Yeah. We wouldn't have thought that this was something that should have been written down, yeah. which would which was a mistake, you mm -hmm. know, on our part that we that we missed this. So the ability to communicate clearly, whether it's writing or speaking, I've, I've come to really appreciate. I remember reading a, I read a lot of popular science books. I was reading the biography of uh, Nikolai Tesla. It's absolutely fascinating. His life story is just in, inherently interesting, and it was the dullest book. I was like, How did this person manage I mean, to take something so interesting and make it so dull? So I have a really appreciation for people like. Um, you know, Stephen Johnson or even Malcolm Gladwell where you know, he gets a lot of stick but you know, the ability to make it interesting and make it appealing to a mass market um, yeah, is in some ways more important than you know, being the most knowledgeable or uh, you, know, you hope that it's accurate at least but yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, backed up with dreams of data and made boring yeah. um, so I'm hoping that over the years that's where my sort of leaning has gone is more in explaining stuff, yeah. not, not being the best at stuff, not by a long shot, mm. but in, in maybe communicating uh, how stuff works right. in an accessible manner. Mm. And that's generally what I'm trying to do in my talks, is generally I'm trying to get some concepts across, not that they're tricky concepts, mm. um, but just trying to make them accessible right. to people. Yeah, and like, like you said, like you, you know, people, we've been in the industry for a while, and so when people like write a blog post explaining something that we mm. think is basic, I'm like, what? Like, yeah. oh, exactly? And um, I was at Comic-Con, and uh, DC's comics was wiping out all their characters and starting fresh again. And people were like, what the hell are you doing with that? You know, like, they always fogeys you, like, collecting comics forever, right? You know, like me. Uh, and it was just, uh, and they said, like, you know, the next issue is going to be someone's first issue. Like, not that it's number one, but, like, yeah. like if it's number 12 issue, it's going to be the first issue 
uh, we need to have characters that are, you know, in their language, if you will. They're, they're, Where they don't they're, need they're to go and study for Right. Yeah. And one of the examples like, you know, the 1950s, you know, with uh, Sputnik and the uh, UFO crashing, you know, whatever, like, I don't think it was a big, big deal. But, uh, you know, uh, the whole uh, rocket ship, uh, ray gun type things was, was commonplace. And so you had a lot of villains still in the DC comics area shooting ray guns. Right. It's time for an update. Now it's like, now they're just inherently bad. They can just throw like freeze rays everywhere with their hands. So now it's like totally up here. But yeah, so, so that's a geeky explanation for geeky (laughs) things about CSS. So, uh, yeah. I gave my nerd cred stamp for another year. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, can, I can definitely understand that. There's a lot of, at least in my situation, seeing a lot of the wide-eyed yeah. in the headlights sort of students just saying, these books are out there. It was difficult finding textbooks that would be in mm-hmm. made for a designer. Right, that, never done this, that, knowledge. that their experience with the internet was their iPhone yeah. that they used for Facebook only and maybe the occasional phone call wow. or they maybe had MySpace but laughed at their older sibling who really used it every day. Right. And for them to come into web design, there weren't really a lot of books that we could find for them. Finally, there was a book that came out, HTML and CSS, oh, yeah. simply titled by John Duckett, but color-coded yeah. and very typographically yeah, very nice. well-designed. Very nice really, yeah. And all the students are like, oh, this looks a lot less intimidating. It doesn't look like... Yeah. Um, yeah. As, as someone who's written several books, like, I am impressed by that book exists, yeah. mm-hmm. the way it does. And I think we should get him on the show and talk yeah. to him. Because, like, I think that it's so great that that, yeah. that book, somebody needed to write that book. It wasn't yeah. going to be me. <laughs> but <laughs> being able to see that solution of there's the HTML in blue, CSS in um, pink, and then in green was the result. So here's what you should see on your screen. And if it doesn't look like this, go back to these the pink or blue yeah. one and then double check that you wrote yeah. it in that way. And they which, feel which reminds me, when, when, when I was growing up, when I was a young college, <laughs> um, my very first computer was the ZX81 so-called, because that was the year it came out, so older than you, Sam, <laughs> and uh, it had 1K of RAM, although we got a 16K RAM pack, but you could, you could do the basic thing, right, 10, print, 20, go to 10, all that, and that feeling of doing that and, you know, executing that little program and seeing the result on the screen was really empowering, you know, and, you know, played around with it, but I, I never lost that feeling of like, wow, you could change, you know, change things, right. um, so we probably, and then I didn't really use computers for many, many years, and then when... You know, in the 90s, when, when Windows comes along and the, and the Internet's really sort of starting to take off in the web, um, I thought I'd tackle, you know, making a website. Because we, we were in a band in Germany. Right. Decided we, we should have a website. We had an email address, which was good, but we needed a <laughs> website, a hotmail address. So I thought I'd give it a try. And then an old friend from our college who was back in the States, and I knew he was working with computers in some yeah. way. So I asked him, and someone was saying, uh, how do, what do I need to make a website? And what I was expecting him to tell me was, you need this piece of software. Yeah. Right? In the same way, you want to make graphics, you need Photoshop. Right? Yeah. You want to do video, you need this piece of software. To make websites, you need this big, expensive piece of software. Mm-hmm. And when he wrote back, he said, well, you open up you know, a text editor, like say, you know, what, what, what would have been on Windows at the time? Te- uh, a text editor? Text right. editor, whatever. The, notepad, or notepad, or notepad. 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 So like, open up Notepad, and you type these kind of less than, greater than things like yeah. you know, H1. And P and stuff, and then you save that as .htm. Mm-hmm. Remember back then it was three three letter, yeah. and then double click it and it opens in a browser. And I was like, what? Yeah, like I don't need right. a big you know piece of software. Yeah, and so I, I tried it, and I remember it was like an echo of that feeling I had with, with Basic on the on the ZX81. It was like, yeah. oh, I can I can publish, I can I can change what's on the screen, and and then 
I could actually put this out there on the web, and anybody in the world yeah. could access it by going to, to that URL. That is a really empowering feeling, mm -hmm. the, you know, the fact that anybody could do that. Um, and yeah, and I think maybe people have lost sight of that if they're what they're used to is, you know, inputting stuff through a, a third-party form like mm -hmm. Facebook or, or Twitter or something else. That's how they that's how they publish now is through some third party. Um, there is, and I don't want to sound like you know some neckbeardy Unix geek or something where you know <laughs> you should be able to do everything by hand. But there's this. It's a, it's actually a very good feeling. It's a really empowering mm -hmm. feeling to, to of an independence. You know, yeah. like I can. Right, my own HTML, I can publish this document. And, and like, I think you ranted about this before, but uh, the view source is now yeah. harder to find in the browser. Well, that's how it, so, yeah, that's how I was learning. Was the yeah. view source, and as we said, there was, you know, Ask Dr. Web, and there was yeah. High Five, and there was WebMonkey, and right. the Web Design L mailing list ran by Steve. Oh, Chandler, yeah, yeah. Right, that was hugely important. Mm. Um, but yeah, view source. I, in the uh, forward for, um, or the, the, Acknowledgements for DOM scripting. Mm. I thanked ViewSource. Yeah. <laughs> Along with all these people I was thanking, I was like, thank you, ViewSource, because that was such an important part as well. Although, interesting, you know, going back to the origins of the web, uh, Tim Berners-Lee was surprised that people ended up writing documents in HTML. Because HTML was kind of intended to write uh, almost like index pages yeah. where you'd point to the real content. But the real content would be in whatever f format, you know, right. Word files or PDFs or, or whatever proprietary formats. And as it turned out, the HTML was easy enough to learn that people just started writing the content right. in HTML. It was just just good enough that um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was fine. And and it was recognizable because people had done SGML and they recognized some yeah. of this stuff and they you could pick it up pretty easily. But it was kind of an accident. Yeah. It was never really intended. It was a very happy accident in my opinion. Well, also PDFs were designed to replace the web. So yeah. you're actually like, because Adobe came out and said, like, yeah, you actually design it and it's pixel perfect and you just move it and move on and stuff like that. And people were like, oh, you mean this Word file that I've been having forever? I can just make a Word file and just put it on the web and people would download it and fill it out and have to do some weird fucking thing. Then that became what we know as PDF. So. Yeah. And then uh, Quark came out with something else I tried to place the web. And yeah, and in, in the 90s, a bunch of things came along. I remember uh, somebody was, like showing what was output by the, the editor that later became Go Live. Oh, it was oh, one of the great work. And I talked to Greg about it because yeah. you know, he was like, oh, look at that markup you're opening, all this proprietary stuff. He's like, look, what you remember at the time was it was not clear at all that HTML was going to go, go win and, and yeah. or survive or um, you know, be, be this long-term format. Yeah. Uh, no format had ever lasted longer than a you know, yeah. short period of time. So yeah, yeah, we were making stuff up. That was how stuff was mm -hmm. done. Um, the, the longevity of HTML, I think, took people by surprise. Yeah. You know, how can William Lee, uh, he was at CERN in the early days as well, and uh, he placed a bet pretty early on that HTML would be around in 50 years, yeah. which is a crazy bet. Cause 50 years for computer format, you know, it's, that's it's crazy talk. Yeah. But now, you know, it's, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd back that. We're like two-fifths of the way there. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Pretty good. And like I said, you know, the design principles behind HTML, that, that email from Ian Hickson, is, uh, it's by design, you know, they're thinking about long-term this stuff. So, yeah, I think he was pretty prescient with that. Hopefully nobody bet on H group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a betting pool for elements and how long they'll survive. Well, that would be awesome because then you could, like, you know, determine which ones actually people want and are going to survive. Right? That actually might not be. And then you have all these... Then, you then you have you just, all this data. Then you see the landscape of who's winning and then you, then you go into the discussion group and actually say, well, you know, you're... Uh, 
Uh, you're uh, you're really like winning the Ben fool right here with this uh, group of Harold. I don't know if that would work because I bet everyone would bet on the picture element, but it still won't make it into browsers. Cause yeah. all, yeah. Oh, let's talk about that. Uh, <laughs> that's not. Okay, that's sounds good. good. Uh, all right. Um, is there anything, we've talked about a lot of things. Uh, is there any, anything else that we haven't talked about that you're passionate about right now? Or? Um... Really off, the, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Okay. I'm, I'm passionate about going out and exploring Austin a bit. Versus tacos or tacos yeah. in general? Tacos, barbecue. I feel like I should see some live music, go to an Alamo Draft House show or something like that. Uh, but no. all the things you can't do in South by Azan. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. had Artifact Conference at the Alamo Draft House. I was, nice. I was telling yeah. him yesterday, it was just milkshakes oh. in the <laughs> afternoon where you could have a little bit of whiskey or Baileys or yeah. things like that. Cookies made to order, fresh out of the oven. Yeah, I, I, I was like, I was co-host, and I think the first thing I said, like, how many people have never been to the Alamo Draft House? I'm like, you're welcome. Just, <laughs> that you're was the yourself. best, ex- I mean, to sit there for two days and just have food brought to you. Yeah. Oh, that was nice. good. That kicks nice it up feeling. a notch. Yeah. Now, does, uh, Remy organizes a conference in Brighton every year called Full Frontal, mm-hmm. which happens in a local art house cinema. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. yours. That's my idea. He was gonna have it. He was gonna have a hotel on the seafront. So I was like, "No, Remy, to New York. So I've been investigating. You know how much it costs to rent it out, and you could totally do it." Yeah. So he did it. And he, yeah, it was really, really good. Yeah. Comfiest conference seats ever. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely it's good. That was awesome. How can uh, people find you on the web and internet? Uh, Adactio.com. Mm-hmm. That's the URL that. I at least have some control over. <laughs> uh, if that goes away, it'll be my own fault. Yeah. And then generally, I'm a, a Dactio on other third-party services like Twitter and GitHub. At plus all things. Mm-hmm. Right? At and plus and whatever other... Yeah, wherever are. wherever there's a social network, I'm probably mm-hmm. on it as a Dactio. Yeah. You know, Flickr, Twitter, GitHub, Dribble, Instagram, all the usual stuff. Yeah. But, but uh, Dactio.com is the place I called home. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your visit here to Austin and being on the show. My like, pleasure. Like I said, we've been wanting to talk to you for a while, so it's been great. Hey. Cool. Thank you so much.